0: There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Hi, folks,
1: this is Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is August 21st, 2017, and this is episode 2069 of the Survival Podcast, and uh, it is a Monday. That means it is time for listener feedback. It's also the eclipse! Yes, the end of the world is coming because there's an eclipse! There's only one every 40... There's actually an eclipse, by the way, guys, every six months. Every six months, there's an eclipse. Actually, every six months there's a, a, a solar eclipse, and then the next six months there's a lunar eclipse. Yeah, it's 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 not as rare as you would think. Like, believe it or not, the two solar eclipses a year thing is actually not a hard rule. Yeah, I, I know people are not going to believe me right now. I know you're not going to believe me. You're going to have to look this up for yourself. The maximum number of solar eclipses that can occur in a single year is actually five. It's actually five. I'm not going to get into why or what have you that's very rare by the way but in general most calendar years have two two solar eclipses so why haven't you seen one of the magnitude of what's going on right now by the way like I'm getting my uh mild darkening of the sky I would darkening of the sky is anyway the uh it looks like it is uh Almost about to start being twilight in an hour right now. Like I mean, it's really not even in effect because I have a seventy-five percent here, right? But um, you know, some of you guys right now, because it's uh, one ten p.m. as I'm recording this right now. I'm not outside with my uh, welding mask looking at the eclipse because it's just not that impressive. I went and checked it out; it wasn't that big of a deal here. But you might wonder, like, so if there's two every year, why haven't we seen one? I think in the United States like this, where it was this big a deal, and this much of the United States had people running around buying solar eclipse glasses for 50 bucks that you could have bought for $2 a, a few weeks ago. Uh, it, it's because the Earth, first of all, is 75% water. So just on average, it's about three-fourths of the time that there's a solar eclipse that happens over the ocean. And then we're not that big of a place compared to the rest of the world, so... It isn't that they're rare, it's that they're rare in any one location, because it kind of moves around. Anyway, just a little side note there, but yes, if anybody ever asks you what the maximum number of solar eclipses that can occur in one year is, the correct answer is five. And before you shout heresy, check the great Google, and you'll find out all about it. Uh, You can go to timeanddate.com and look up how often do solar eclipses occur to learn more if you actually care. On that though, what are we actually going to talk today about? Not solar eclipses, not lunar eclipses or anything like that. Today we are going to talk about feedback for me, and I've had dramatically little, if any, feedback on the solar eclipse. Um, it is a cool thing, and I guess if you're in the part of the country where you're going to hit totality, it is kind of an eerie thing. I remember it was in the 80s sometime that we had one in Jacksonville, Florida that was a total eclipse. I think it was the last big one in the United States, honestly, and it uh, covered a large part of the United States anyway. And uh, it was it was pretty cool. When I mean, it was almost dark out. We had like a ninety-eight percent totality where I was at. It was pretty awesome. But uh, we're talking about other things today. So we're going to talk about some follow-up from last week when I did my piece on, you know, antifa and white nationalism and how they're different but they're the same. I've had people actually accuse me of giving the white nationalists a pass. Because I read a story about the one kid that went to the nationalist rally and said he's not the, the, the racist people think he is. Um, I, there's nothing, I, I can't believe that was misunderstood. But I'm going to actually talk today a little bit about how white nationalism, how dangerous it really is just so I'm not misunderstood, just so people can understand the real threat here. Because I think people are underestimating the threat that this thing represents. And the Antifa threat as well, by the way. But I'm going to focus on the white nationalism side. It'll be about a 10-minute segment. I think you'll learn something from it. I think it'll make you, if you just don't have any understanding of how the hell this thing could be going on, I think it'll help you. If you don't think it matters, I think it'll help you understand why it does matter. And um, if you think it's kind of okay, I'm hoping that it'll help you realize it's not okay. Next, I have a question on whether to sell a property or become a landlord. I have a guy that a little follow-up from last week's segment from the expert council. Another way to deal with thistles, I think, is pretty, uh, pretty good idea. So I'll cover that It'll be real quick. Benefits and limitations of an indoor aquaponics system. Understanding raised beds and soil depth issues. If that doesn't make sense, it will when I get to the actual question. Could a wildfire cause a spring to dry up? Yes, I'll tell you why and how, and how it's still maybe a maybe for the person asking the question. A uh, question on why Stephen and Harris and I often recommend inverters of the 400 to 800-watt range instead of things that are like 1,600, 2,000 watts, etc. Uh, another cop that doesn't believe the law applies equally to him and the damage that that's caused and how long he got away with doing what he's been doing. Uh, it doesn't look like he's getting away with it now, but you know it doesn't help the person that was injured. And chopping and dropping and planting concrete We'll do all that more in just a bit. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. His website, you can go find all his Berkey cool stuff at us, directive21.com. Uh, we've covered a lot on water lately, specifically some follow-up from users, who uh, listeners of the show, who have purchased a Berkey water filtration system. They're very grateful that they have it. And they feel that way because of the fact that they've had notices from their water company saying, hey, you should boil water now because, yeah. And it's always that way, isn't it? Like they tell you, like, there's a boil water advisory. Well, what happened? Well, like two weeks ago, something went wrong, and we, we just caught it. Come on. Like if you are drinking water without running it through a filter right now, I don't care if 99% of the time your water is fine, that 1% is a danger. And long term, so, so, you know, being self-sufficient, self-reliant, having a way to purify water is absolutely critical so, check out Jeff the Barky, Bert, the barky Guy. Jeff the Barky Guy Gleason at Directive21.com. Next up today, knifekits.com. Look, guys, um, I, I really think this is one of the coolest things that a father and son can do together. Don't get me wrong, mother and daughter, too, but I just kind of see this as like, a really cool father son project. You go to knifekits.com, you pick out a pattern, you pick out some handle materials and things like that. You get a, a DVD or a book that tells you how to do the finishing work. You can learn more from places like YouTube, there's tons of videos on this. And actually, make a knife. Now, it won't be like forging your own blade and stuff like that, which is good. It'll give you the basics of fit and finish uh, and, and doing something really custom and unique. And great pricing, great reputation. Knifekits.com, long term sponsor, been with us over eight years. Check them out today. Knifekits.com. Remember, the Berkey guy and knifekits.com both do a discount for members of the Support Brigade. And I'm going to cover the Support Brigade now because I want to tell you something. I'm doing a sale, yes, sale on MSB, sale on MSB, yeah, why? Because we upgraded, that's right, we upgraded the MSB, now, I'll tell you what, with a few minor exceptions, you won't notice anything different, it'll be the same MSB it always was, you log in, you get your discount codes, you go get your stuff at a discount price, you get your download videos and all that stuff, it'll pretty much look the same, I am going to dress it up a bit because it's kind of ugly, uh, but we'll do that later in the year. But the big change is, for many of you that hate PayPal, you can now just pay with a credit card through Stripe. That's right. You don't have to have a Stripe account either. You just pay with a credit card like any other website. Um, I held off on that for so long because I am so against consumer-level debt. Uh, But the reality is PayPal has caused me a lot of grief and cost me a lot of money. Cancellations, people's renewals failing, people trying to sign up and not being able to sign up. And when I call PayPal and say, hey, there's a problem, they say, there's no problem. Well, I'm sorry. I pay you jerks an awful lot of money every year in fees, and I have people that can't sign up or have their renewals constantly failing, so there's a problem. Well, we don't see a problem. Okay, so I see a solution. It's called Stripe. So I've now integrated that into the website. We've also changed some things that make the site more secure, uh, specifically from my end. Your information is always secure because we don't store any payment information whatsoever on the MSB. and We never have and we never will. But it's a really, really important update. Uh, and it will help me make the MSV better long term, even though, again, it won't look that much different to you. But you can now pay by credit card. You can pay by PayPal, cash check, money order uh, via mail, silver via mail, or cryptocurrency. And the sale I'm running is 25 bucks a year. 25 bucks a year. That means, yes, it applies to recurring. Discount code? Upgrade. Upgrade. Not spelled like the guy from Idiocracy, right? Upgrade. U-P-T-R-A-D-E. Upgrade. Upgrade. Uh, use that when you sign up. Write it on the form if you send the form in. Uh, if you do cryptocurrency, just adjust the price. But yeah, you can sign up now. Twenty-five bucks a year. Now, here's the thing: if you are an existing customer, you can't use the sale if your account is still active. I'm not a jerk. I'm not Verizon or AT&T that doesn't value you. If you, if I, if I turn the system on to where you can renew. When you do it won't cancel your old account and you're going to get double billed and you'll be mad at me. So I don't want, I don't want that to happen. There's no way around that. No credit card company, no PayPal, nobody will let me basically do something that like says, "Okay, stop charging them here and start charging them again here and then adjust." It just technically can't be done. But if you have an expired account or you've been thinking about joining, 25 bucks a year, sale runs until Saturday midnight uh, Central Standard Time. After that, it doesn't run anymore, so no, you can't use it next Monday. All right, with that, let's take a look at the year that was. The year that was the year 48. There's something interesting that really pertains to modern times here. It's almost a footnote. It's called, It's a Secret. Not a very good one, apparently. Contributed by David Verne from the year 48 A.D. Claudius, his wife, Miscellania, has been carrying on an affair with Silas, a senator soon to be a consul. She convinces him to divorce his wife, and he begins to pressure her to divorce Claudius and marry him. When Claudius left on a trip to the port city of Ost- Ost- Ostia, uh, Messalina and Silas got married. Rome was the ultimate grapevine, and nothing stayed secret for long, but they didn't even try to keep the secret. They got married in a lavish ceremony with hundreds of guests at the feast, afterwards basically acting as if everything were normal. Narcissus, Claudius's chief of staff, has formed an alliance of com- convenience uh, with Miscellania. But things have gone way too far. He tells Claudius about his wife's activities, asking, Are you aware you're divorced? For the whole Senate and the people saw the ceremony. Claudius was stunned, but moved quickly to find out if a coup was going on. After hearing that Claudius was coming back to Rome, Miscellania left Rome with her children and tried to see Claudius. But Narcissus, made sure she didn't get anywhere near the emperor. Nar- Narcius took Claudius to Silas's home, telling him all the proof he needed was there. Claudius went to the home and found statues and pieces of furniture from the imperial palace. Miscellania had been moving stuff there for some time. Miscellania continued to deny everything, including the marriage, but hundreds of witnesses claimed otherwise. Claudius was still hesitant to kill Miscellania, and Narcius was concerned he might pardon her. Narcissus dispatched several centurions, telling them the Emperor ordered her death. The centurions found her and executed her, and Silas, the Emperor, reportedly didn't react, and the Senate voted for Dominito Memoria, or condemnation of memory. Her name would be removed from anywhere and all statues taken down, in an attempt to erase all memory of the person from history. Huh. My take by David Verne. I don't know what Miscellania and Silas were hoping to accomplish here as they did not have a shred of claim to the throne. They just got married and acted like it was business as usual. The historian, Tactius, writing 70 years later, expresses his disbelief to his readers, saying, quote, I am well aware that it may seem incredible that in a city that knows all and conceals nothing, any members of the human race could have been so reckless. Indeed. Of course, the part of this that I find so relevant to modern times is the concept of condemnation of memory. Her name would be removed from anywhere and all statues taken down in an attempt to erase all memory of a person from history. And then seventy years later this guy Taxius is writing about this person. Is there not a lesson there for us today that think we need to take down a statue of Robert E. Lee or whoever? Like you can't erase history. You can't look at this time there was no photographs, there was no internet. The average person had never seen a book, right? Everything was handwritten or hand-inscribed, and yet there were still, with the specific goal of government, eliminating a person from history, who was kind of a complete shitbag, by the way, uh, was still being written about 70 years later. In fact, incredulously written about. Just something to think about as we go into our first topic today. So here's what I want to talk about starting out. Um so I did the Tuesday show last week on what we're really dealing with when we're dealing with something like Antifa, white nationalism, white supremacists, KKK, all of this crap, you know. And in that in that I pointed out that there was this one guy that was in a photograph at the Charlottesville protest the night before with the tiki torch nonsense. that looks really angry. It was was like he was shouting, holding his tiki torch. And he became like the face of, uh, of white nationalism. And uh, there was this whole article with him quoting it, saying, I'm not the angry racist that people think I am. And he gave his whole explanation as to why he went there which was still, in my opinion, quite racist uh, overall, but with a different marketing beat to it. And I thought that was implied. Well, I got a lot of criticism, and I'm sure some is just from asshats, right? But I got enough, and some of it poignant enough and articulated well enough to think that maybe I didn't explain myself well enough. Saying, basically, I gave the guy a pass. You gave the guy a pass. But you didn't give anybody on the Antifa side a pass. Okay, I gave nobody a pass. I gave nobody a pass. And then kind of really making me feel like I needed to do this segment today. There was a comment in the blog comments that really, really bugs me, even though I don't hold anything against this person, David, who made the comment. But it says, the problem, Jack, is you have forces behind the scenes manipulating events. I agree. Then he says, the Nazis are small and or fake. Antifa wants Trump out. Okay, yeah, no, sort of, and if they succeed in killing or removing Trump, the patriots are going to step in, and then it will get real messy. Yeah, okay, first of all, the Nazis are small and or fake. The Nazis are small, and there probably are some fake ones running around to agitate the situation. Antifa does want Trump out. Antifa's the far left. The entire left wants Trump out. Frankly, the entire left of the United States has lost its effing mind over Donald Trump. People on the left that used to make some sense make no sense at all now. Complete blithering idiots. Okay, I'll give you that. But the whole concept, of small, the, the Nazis are small. Let's leave the whole patriots are going to step in for, for a second. The Nazis, the true hardcore... You know, White hood-wearing, KKK, clan saluting Nazi flag-carrying, right-hand-up, Zeke Heil Nazis are a very small group. White nationalism is getting big, and it's getting big fast. Now, big what? Big in the numbers of probably tens of thousands. Tens of millions? No, tens of thousands. Yes, tens of thousands in a relatively new movement is a lot, and there's a danger that it gets higher. So let me read my response to David in the blog, because it'll help this whole segment kind of roll straight through. It says, David, due to the ideolo- ideological climate, the Nazis sadly are growing, and that is my entire point. White nationalism is not the same as white supremacy, except that it is. Confusing? No, not really. Think of any sci-fi type thing where some young person is tempted into the use of magic. Just a little, you see, and only for good, but what always happens in the end? What white nationalism does is similar, but unlike the occult, it is real. Let's take a journey with a hypothetical young man named Tony. Tony is a good guy. Maybe Tony's a lot like me. He grew up in a racist family, but he broke it, but not quite to the level I did. Say Tony never joined the army and put his life in the hands of men of other races, so the break isn't quite as full. Still, Tony is not a racist. He is even a young man you might want to see your son grow up to be like. Tony is in college. He is doing good with grades, etc. He busted his ass to get there. He simply wants to get finished, find a good job, and start a life. He hopes for a wife, a family, a decent house, and frankly, just to be left the hell alone. But every day, Tony has professors reminding him of his so-called white privilege. While he is busting his ass to maintain a 3.0 or better GPA to keep his partial scholarship, while also working part-time to pay the balance of his tuition, and he is still taking on some debt. All this money is paying for his black professor in psychology class to, to drive a nice car. Tony wonders if he will ever be able to afford one like that. Just today, said professor gave a lecture on the impact of white privilege on our society. Many of Tony's friends over the first two years start to accept this stupidity. They start protesting in the street when anyone with a different opinion shows up. They all start talking about white privilege, even though they are white. Some black students are calling for a day without a white person on campus and want to ban whites from dorms named after famous black people. By the way, those are two things that have actually happened. Just saying, okay? Tony learns that many of the black people in his school got lower test scores and still got in. But if he had gotten that score he would not have gotten in. Tony took the ACT three times to get a good enough score to get in, by the way. By the way, Tony's based on a real person, not the racism part, but all of this, yeah, okay? Just saying, okay? Uh, but, it, but if he had gotten that score, he would not have gotten in. Tony took the ACT three times to get a good enough score to get in, by the way. When Tony points out that every student in this college is treated the same, he is shouted down for his white privilege while on his way to a job that none of these others, black, white, red, or otherwise, seem to need to get by. One day, Tony meets a well-dressed and articulate young man on campus, recruiting for some group that is basically a white nationalist group under another name. The man says, We are not racist. We just recognize the differences between the races. And that seems to be okay for everyone to do except white people. We are tired of being told about our privilege, at the same time we are told that our culture sucks, that we should not talk about it or be proud of it. We want to be treated equally to everyone else, that is all. But we are done asking for that. We are now demanding it. Take a look at this flyer and consider attending one of our meetings. End quote. This is the first positive and powerful message that Tony has heard in years about his race and culture. It also sounds nothing like his racist father's constant use of the N-word, Yes, the true KKK, hood wearing Nazi, flag saluting, overt racist fucks are few in number. Some because they died off, others, realizing their message was one that was failing to work, changed over to the white nationalists and alt right messages. They are the heads of the snake in the movement. Many joined for the reason Tony did, but well, the path leads to the same dark place. To just say there are not, there are just not that many of these people and they are not in danger is to miss the very real threat they represent. And every time the media gives a pass to the left, it gets worse. And David, before you get too excited about so-called patriots, remember the words of Samuel, Samuel Johnson from 1775. Patriotism is the last refuge of a scoundrel. Many see this as an attack on patriotism. It isn't. It is a simple point that patriotism can be used to hide true malice by the scoundrels of the world, and when we follow under the banner of blind patriotism, very bad things happen. So I want to expand on that a little bit before we move on to another subject today. I want to go back to the concept of the occult. I want you to think of like, when I was, when I was a young person in my 20s, back in the 90s, I used to watch a show called Buffy the Vampire Slayer, okay? And there was this character in there named Willow. She was like Buffy's like BFF, right? And she became a witch, Willow the witch. Right? Who would have guessed? But it you know, she it got very dark, and she got very powerful, and she you know almost destroys the world and all. But it all started out with just little things and wanting to help and doing good for the right reason. And yeah, we have to use this kind of dark magic, but it's okay for it's a good reason. And the the lure is always so great. And the power is so all-consuming that it drags the character down the dark path. Same thing with, you know, with Jedis, right? The dark side is indeed powerful, etc. So this is a basic concept, right? Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. It's all the same dynamic. Now, but imagine, see, the reason that you look at someone like that and go, bah, is because it doesn't work. You can sit around contemplating your navel, chanting, calling on the god and goddess all you want in Wicca and whatever, and it's all just, uh, it's it's nonsense, right? It, 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 at best, it's uh, it's cathartic. Like, I think people that practice Wicca, I'm not saying you're devil worship. I'm not one of these nonsensical people, but if you, if you do that and you think it actually changes anything, it's catharsis. Right? It doesn't really do anything. It might change your outlook and it might make you make better decisions. I don't know. But if you want me to fall in love with you and you chant some wicked crap that says Jack is going to fall in love with you, it ain't working. Okay, It just isn't. But imagine if it did. Imagine if it did. Imagine if there were people that could channel into the occult. And actually start to make things like the iPhone that's sitting in front of me begin to levitate off of the table a little bit, spin around and go back down. Or when the phone rings and it's a number you don't want, you just think about it and it goes to the call block, something like that. And that you could learn to do things like just look at somebody and basically psychically push them just a couple inches out of the way. So that I might as well learn that because if somebody's going to get run over by a car, I can just give them a little nudge. Where would it lead? Where would it lead? You know where it would lead for most people. No matter how good they were when they started getting involved with something like that, you know where it would lead to. This is white nationalism. The basic case for white nationalism, if you'll put aside the fact that it's inherently racist, okay, makes sense. They changed the word race racist to racialism, right, from racism to racialism. Instead of being racist, I'm opposed to other races. Racialists recognize there's differences between the races. And, and, and those differences are largely socioeconomic. They're, they're, not, they're not inherently there by individual. Now, certain races do have certain attributes and things that tend to, on the law of averages, be better or worse, i.e., Blacks are generally better athletes than whites. That's a truth. And whether you want to believe it or not, come on. Right? That's a truth. The fact that Asians tend to have average aggregate IQs higher than that of whites is true. Whether you want to believe it or not, it doesn't matter. It's probably not as true as it appears, though. Because IQ is measured with a test, and test is measured with academia, and academia is something that is something you're exposed to. And how seriously do you take it? How many of us white kids had tiger moms? right? So that can be a bit misleading, but there's still some inherent accuracy to it. And that is what white nationalists do. They grab on the truth to sell a lie. Hey, look, there's more climes in areas with high-density populations of black people. No, there's more crime in high density populations of poor ass people, and there has to be a whole lot of density of poor ass black people. But you can, you can pull out FBI statistics and prove the first claim, thereby proving that you're right. Yeah. And this is the toxic ick that comes from this. We are one species, human beings. We are one species. We inhabit this planet as a unique species. And just because there might be a predisposition that one might be more gifted or less gifted in a certain area based on their color, it's not a hard, fast rule. It really isn't. There's exceptions everywhere. There's some really stupid white people and some really stupid Asians. And there's some really brilliant black people, really really brilliant Native Americans, really brilliant Arabs. And there's stupid people everywhere, too. Right? To, 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 to like assign something to someone based on their birth is just inherently racist, not racial. It really is. But because the environment has become so toxic in this country, because if you do point out some of the inherent general, average, aggregate differences, you're immediately branded a racist, how powerful does the message of white nationalism get dripped into the ear of somebody like our friend Tony? who actually, again, is based on a real person with a name change. How powerful does it become? You've been told you suck every day for the last two years. The people you showed up, initially made friends with, are now ostracizing you because you won't join in in their their self-defamation. You're working your ass off trying to put yourself through school while your professors tell you you suck for being white and they're driving a car you don't know that you'll ever afford, and you're going in a debt that's actually helping to pay for it. And somebody comes along and tells you these things. Or you're just a hard-working guy, busting your ass every day, that sees the hypocrisy of the leftist media. And every time you say anything that's, that's, that's pro about being white, you're branded a racist. And you hear this message. Use the truth, sell a lie. Because in the end, white nationalists, what do they want? They want a white homeland. There's only one way you get there. And it's really dark and it's really ugly. And I'm not saying there's no decent people in that movement. They just don't know what they're being lured into. And they don't know where it leads. And there's good people in every movement, even the most shitty ones. My father-in-law was part of the resistance, the, the underground resistance in the Netherlands, during the Nazi occupation of World War II. He was a teenager. His father had already been captured. His father was a leader in the resistance. His father was later awarded the Presidential Service Medal with uh, with gold palm, which is the highest medal at the time a person could receive as a civilian for his actions in risking his life to save lives during World War II. He was in a gulag by this point. My father-in-law was captured with a suitcase full of Nazi uniforms, taking it from one group of resistance fighters to another so that they could basically put them on and go kill Nazis. Kind of a problem in World War II. He was going to be shot. He was assigned to a soldier who was told to march him from one building to another. The soldier's a full-on Nazi, dressed in German uniform. If you, were an, if you were an Allied troop, you came into contact with them During this time, you'd have shot him, and he'd try to shoot you. He's a Nazi. You know what happened about halfway across the walk? He says to my father-in-law, who was, again, a young boy at the time, I'm going to get sick. And when I get sick, you run, and you keep running, and you get away, and you don't look back. My father-in-law thought to himself, is this just a trick so he can shoot me? And he also thought, I don't know, but I know if I go with them, they're going to shoot me. It's the one chance I have. So the soldier did exactly what he said he would do. He pretended to get sick. My father-in-law ran away. He hooked up with some other members of the underground. They hit him. And not long after that, the Allies liberated the Netherlands. He then joined the Dutch Marine Corps. Why does that have anything to do with today? Was the man who was a full-blown actual German Nazi in the middle of World War II, was at his core, was he a decent man? He risked his... For all we know, he got shot after he did this because they didn't believe him. Risked his own life to save a 14-year-old boy who was a member of the active resistance attempting to kill members of his own party because he looked at what was going on and said inherently, this is wrong. So my question for those that get involved with something like, like white nationalism... How far do you walk down that path do you have that moment? Do you realize where it leads? How many people walk down the path just a little bit in Nazi Germany because it seemed like it made sense and the economy got better and this Hitler guy's a little eccentric, but hey he's making good things happen for the German people before they realize where the path led and just so it doesn't get misunderstood, everything I said can be applied to the leftist ideology antifa anarcho-communism, which is just communism, straight-up communism, socialism. People get roped in with different marketing. It leads to the same dark-ass, death-ridden place. And it always uses lines of race and class and and income to create class warfare ideology. And again, when the media gives either side a pass, both sides grow. You don't believe me? I can't can't help you then. I can't help you. So let's move on to something a bit more productive, um, a real estate question. And I think this is a really good question. I think it'll help us all maybe think through how much landlording do we really want to do, and what does it have to do for us to be worth doing. So this comes from Kelly, and Kelly says, "My question is, should I sell my condo slash townhouse to pay off debt, or keep it to rent out?" Details: I bought a townhouse for one hundred and two five, and I now owe eighty five. Townhouses comparable to mine are going for around $140 currently. I'm 28 years old and have 25 years left on my mortgage and have thought about keeping it for income for retirement. I have debt, including my car payment, of around $20,000. My husband and I are looking to buy a house and debating whether or not to keep it. I have never been a landlord. My mortgage and common charges together are about $1,130, plus sewer that's around $500 a year, comp rentals of approximately $1,300. So it is approximately 1500 a year minus taxes worth the heartache of being a landlord, plus paying to fix problems as renters move out. Or should I use the sale of the townhouse to pay off my debt? We have separate funds for down payment on a new house. Is there something I haven't thought of? Thanks for all you do. You're like a dad pushing me to be better every day. Kelly from crappy Connecticut. Um, okay, um, let's start out with just the basics being a landlord with the best case cuz this is best case positive cash flow of $1500 a year i don't love it i don't hate it but i don't love it i'm really not even in like with it i want to be i want to be more cash flow positive than that or i want to be in a really optimum property if i'm in a really optimum property and i have $1500 worth of cash flow uh, under ideal circumstances, then the equity gain may be worth only $1,500 in positive cash flow. Looking at the other numbers, you um, have $20,000 worth of debt. You can sell your house for about $140,000. You owe eighty five on it, so you're looking at $55,000. By the time you pay a real estate agent and do a little bit of staging and all, you say you come out of this with fifty grand in your pocket. I like that. I like $50,000 that you can do whatever you want to with. You know, whether or not we pay the debt with it or not, at this point, I like $50,000, known, we take it now, better than only a $1,500 positive cash flow. And unless I have an optimum property. So do we have an optimum property? We have a townhouse slash condominium. Even in Connecticut, where people are more open to such things, we have a stark upward limit on the value of such a piece of real estate, and we are more encumbered by the shitty neighbor effect. See, each house, property, etc., that you can own, comes with a shitty neighbor effect. Now, your shitty neighbor effect right now might be a zero, because you have all great neighbors, but it takes one shitty neighbor to put a big demerit on the marketability of your home. The closer the potential shitty neighbors, the bigger the potential demerit. So a regular single-family home, standard lot, with some space between your next neighbor, your shitty neighbor effect is mitigated a little bit. Bigger lots, corner lots, things like that, long driveways, etc., fenced properties, all of these things mitigate even further shitty neighbor effects, <clears throat> moving toward the distance of, like, the maximum shitty neighbor effect is something called the zero lot line, which I had never heard of until I moved to Texas. But, for instance, my father-in-law's home that he lived in until he passed away, well, until we had to actually put him in a memory care facility, I don't want to state that incorrectly, was on a zero lot line, meaning he had some space between his, his one side of the property and the next neighbor's, but the other neighbor, their house, sat on the property line. Yeah, like they, like just imagine that every house to the right has some space, but to the left, the next house sits on the property line on the left. That makes the shitty neighbor effect a little bit worse, because your fence literally runs into your neighbor's house. Your neighbor's house becomes the wall, the brick wall becomes your fence. Now we take the, the wall away and we share a wall. We're in a townhome, we're in an apartment, we're in a condo, but we own it. Now the shitty neighbor effect is even more of a problem if we get a shitty neighbor. Now, you may never get one, but if you're banking on the ability to continuously rent the property or sell the property for equity gain in the future, you know one shitty neighbor screws up things pretty bad. So we don't have optimum property with what I would call the minimum threshold of positive cash flow for me to be willing to be a landlord. I think it's at the very bottom. I'm going to have to have a really great setup uh, to want to do that. Renters screw things up. And no matter what you do with security deposits and all, they screw shit up. And then there's simple wear and tear. You know, carpeting has to be replaced. Paint has to be done. Uh, stuff breaks. Stuff. I mean, just a, a water heater going bad, and you're a few grand into it. There's your positive cash flow for the year. You know, so then there's also the the concept of having to make sure... <clears throat> That you keep people as tenants so that you don't have vacancies. Because every month of vacancy starts eating away at that minimal cash flow. So if you end up with three or four months having to find a new tenant, you got to be selective with your tenants because the shittier the tenant, the shittier they're going to treat your property. And they're all going to treat it like shit, by the way. So, to me, I'm looking for more of a neighborhood of about three to four thousand dollars a year in a positive cash flow arrangement unless there's something specifically badass about the property I mean if you give me the right property, but I can make a hundred bucks a month, I'll do it but that's because I see super gain potential and very resilient staying power of the property okay uh, and you've never been a landlord before. So here's what I'm thinking. With $50,000 in my pocket, if I want to be a landlord, I can probably find a better way to be a landlord with $50,000 than I can in your current situation. Just think about that. Like, if I gave you $50,000 and said, this is for investing in real estate only, go find a, a rental property that's a home run. It might take you a year to do it, but do you think you could? Well... It's the same difference, isn't it? You can either have the cash and have that opportunity or you can stay attached to this thing. And and this is the other way I would look at it. If you had $50,000, free and clear, and you were living in a new home, and an opportunity came to acquire this particular townhouse or one just like it, and you had to give up $50,000 to get it for these terms, would you do it? Would you make that deal with $50,000 worth of cash? And if you don't think it's the same thing, you're not thinking about it logically and rationally. You're thinking about it emotionally. You're thinking, about well, it's easy because I already have it, is what you're really thinking, even if that's not how you would articulate it. So I wouldn't do that deal. Now let's talk about the $20,000 worth of debt. <laughs> so I'm leaning toward take the money, pay off the $20,000 worth of debt, take $30,000, put it in a savings account, and say this is an opportunity fund. And we are not going to let that money burn a hole in our pocket and make us feel bad about the fact that it's there. If it takes us two years to find the right opportunity of what we really need to do with that money, so be it. We're just not going to go piss it away. We're not going to spend it like it's just money. We don't know what we might need it for, but we're going to put it in its own little account. We're going to just let it sit there for a while. We're going to see how we feel about it. We're going to get our move done. We're going to get our new home. We're going to get everything squared away. We're going to let all the chaos and all the emotion go out of our lives. About six months from now, we're going to sit down and have a family meeting. About that $30,000 sitting there. Is there something we should be doing with it? Or we're just going to keep servicing the debt, because it doesn't sound like y'all have any problem doing that. $20,000 with a car payment ain't that much. We're going to put a $50,000 in the bank account. We're going to do the same thing. Do one of those two things. That's what I would do. Now, would I get on you and beat you about the head and shoulders if you chose to become a landlord here? No, but based on the numbers and based on the property type and based on the other alternatives, I think the other alternatives have more merit. Because I do not believe for a minute, if you, if, let's say you, this was a rental. This was a rental. And you'd been renting it, and you now you are going to buy your first house. You had all the money for your down payment, stuff like that. And it, just as you are getting ready to move into your house, your aunt, aunt Selma, who you never even knew was your rich great-great-aunt, died, and you found out you were getting a check for $50,000. And you were leaving the same place, and the landlord said, hey, you do $50,000 down, owner financing on an $85,000 note, and I'll let you buy the place, and you can rent it out. I don't think you'd even think about doing it. I think you'd run away so fast that they'd, he'd be like, what did I say? It's the same thing. And this is always what to do with these financial questions. Rearrange everything so the numbers are the same, but the circumstances are different Where as to where the money resides. Not the circumstances are different as, well, now it's a beach property in Florida. Well, shit, now maybe I would do the deal. Right? Because that is incredible appreciation opportunity. You got me? Right? So we don't change those circumstances. We just change around where the money is. When we were getting ready to pay off one of my vehicles, or one of our trucks, the blue Dodge that is no more, we owed like $3,100 on it. And and, and, and she was she was paying the bills, my wife was, and she said, well, here's the dog. You know, we only owed $3,100 on it. Right? I'm like, you didn't pay that truck off yet? She's like, what? I said, I told you to pay that truck off all last month. So I'm like, we have plenty of money. Pay the truck off. And she gave me the whole case of, you know, it's better to have the money. And I said, hey, if we had just paid, that was the last payment last month we just made. And Dodge sent you a thing that said they would give you $3,100. And then you could make how how many more payments if you went back into debt? Like they'd refinance a truck at $3,100. Just sign the check, deposit it, and start making payments again. Would you do it? She turned red in the face. said, son of a bitch. And she went and wrote the check. 'Cause there was no way to argue that. She'd been through it enough times with me to know. That's what you have to do here. So if the answer is yes, you would do that, then consider it. You know, if you just had fifty thousand dollars it was a rental, you had to tie it up in there to get a hold of the property with eighty five thousand dollar remaining note and you were gonna buy you buy the property with fifty thousand in your hand, well then then maybe you consider it. If you wouldn't, don't do it. Let's take another one. Lots of variety in today's show. Follow up on thistle from Matthew. Matthew says I have a follow up comment on the thistle question answered recently by Darby Simpson, which was trying to help somebody that had way too much thistle in their pasture get rid of it. My grandfather, my grandfather further, my grandfather grew up in southern Minnesota during the Depression. He once told me that when a row crop field would get too heavy with thistle pressure, that 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 his dad would plant the field to alfalfa to be used as a hay crop he claimed the thistles would get quite large between the hay cuttings but not seed out this they would allow they would be hollow stemmed when the field was cut for hay he claimed the rain would fill the hollow stem and kill the thistle i think a clean cut from a sickle mower or something like that would work better to leave the stem uh, than water to take in water than a bush hog or something that kind of shreds the stem i would agree and of course some sort of a you know, a sickle mower would be what you would use to harvest the hay crop, anyway. So that would make perfect sense. So that makes sense. What what basically says to me is like the alfalfa grows so tall and so fast that the thistle has to fight for light, and it grows spindly and tall, and it doesn't doesn't put out seed. And then you harvest it, and then you got these hollow stems. They haven't put out seed, and hollow stems absorb water and rot in the ground. It, it seems like it would make sense. So there's something that maybe some of you that are you know managing pastures, whether they're large or small. That have thistle problems might consider planting alfalfa for a season, harvest it as hay, or sell the hay, or even graze it. You know, you got to be careful grazing straight alfalfa though, guys. That's that's a whole different ball of wax. But you know, one way or another, utilize it, and uh, and, and from that point, you know, you can uh, you can get rid of your thistle. Apparently, most of the tricks from the Great Depression era do seem to work. This one comes from Tom. I like, guess lots of variety today. Tom says. Is it a good idea to build an indoor aquaponic setup, and what design constraints would there be? Background, I recently moved to a house that had a tiled room that we currently have no specific use for. The room is approximately 11 by 12, has no built-in ventilation. Is the room big enough for a full aquaponic system? Will the lack of ventilation beyond an open door be a cause for concern when it comes to mold or other unwanted growths on the drywall? Thanks, Tom. Um, here's, here's my view of this, Tom. You're probably not going to have too huge of a humidity issue in, in, in something like this. Now I would recommend that you paint the walls with a really like a high grade like a bathroom paint, like a bathroom quality paint. And if you have one of those shitty uh, popcorn ceilings, that I would scrape it and I would paint I would you know do a primer and paint of the ceiling the same way. I, I just think that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, you're probably not going to be that big of a system in something like that. You're, you're, you're probably looking at, you know, a couple hundred gallons or something like that. Maybe at most something like two uh, 150-gallon Rubbermaid stock tanks or something would be the core or heart of your system. And you can do a lot with that. In fact, 150-gallon Rubbermaid tub would be a system that in that space you'd have a hard time ever outgrowing. I have two fish tanks I'm looking at sitting in my room right now. They're 75 gallons a piece. You see where I'm going with this, right? It's not, you know, that's, you know, people have way larger fish tanks in their homes, running heaters and running lights. So, yeah, you know, like I said, you want to put a nice, a a good, you know, wall ceiling paint in that room is probably not a bad idea. Smells alone too. You know, the fact there's no rug in there, that's great. Uh, But, I wouldn't even say you have to do that. I would just consider that. Here's your issue. Like, should you do it? You can only you can only make that determination for yourself, whether this makes sense for you or not. Here's your limitations. You're going to have to provide lighting, and quite a bit of it. Quite a bit of it. Because you have no real natural light. And what comes in the window probably won't do jack crap. So however you design out your grow beds, you're going to have to have each individual one have lighting over it. You might do some shallow raft beds would be pretty cool actually in a system like that. So those could be done with something like 15 gallon um, concrete mixing trays that are set on some sort of a shelf that overflow back into your main tank. They don't have to be real deep, put little rafts on them and you know you can grow your lettuces and things like that there. I've never been a fan of growing a lot of raft on top of fish because they tend to eat away at the root system. But if you do them with net pots, they can be reasonably effective. Um, and then the other issue is you're probably going to want to heat the water to something along the lines of 78 degrees, 80 degrees, just because you get so much better uh, a growth rate and all. That's not really that expensive to do with that size system. So it's not really an energy input thing. The lighting is going to be a lot more of an energy sink versus production. than than the water heating will be. But what happens to a room when you have 150 gallons or so of 80-degree water in it? It stays rather warm in there. So unless you're going to be hanging out there all the time and it's going to be a problem for you, I wouldn't really worry about it that much. But that that's probably the case. Now, if you keep your home, if you're one of these people that, like, you're cold-blooded or something, and you keep your home at 76, 78 degrees year-round, you probably don't have to worry about much at all in the way of heat. All right, the good, you'll have almost zero insect pest problems, and anything you do have will be so easy to manage with a little bit of soapy water that you might as well not have any, okay? Uh, number number two, you'll have, you know, aquaponics in general have zero weed pressure, but I mean, you'll have really, because I have a weed pop-up in a wicking bed or a, or a ebb and flow bed from time to time, so you'll have no weed problems whatsoever either, um, you'll be immune to things like, well, it's gonna it's gonna freeze on you know tomorrow night because we're in winter now. I don't care. It's gonna be 115 degrees outside tomorrow. I don't care. You'll have it basically an ongoing system of production. You can run it with a very low powered pump. It'll be very easy to maintain. You can make it look really cool. You can even integrate some standard fish tanks into a system like that you know i'm talking ornamental fish you know so maybe some 40 breeders or 29 long tanks with some just some pretty fish in it or something like that if that's what you want to do there's all kinds of you got to figure out what you actually want to do with the system before you decide whether or not you want to do the system and you got to really i would i would sit down with with paper and pencil And I would draw out like four or five completely different design scenarios. I wouldn't get married to anything, and I wouldn't do anything until you you give yourself four or five different options. That'll help you figure out what you really want to do. You want to think about work and maintenance and cleaning, you know, access to your fish, access to your product. Because one of the other things you are going to deal with in a situation like this is system height. So if we use, let's say, a 150-gallon Rubbermaid tub, they're about two and a half feet tall then that's going to be about your system height, which means anything you're pumping water to, the bottom's going to have to be higher than that for it to effectively drain back into that main tank. And anything you do that brings the, the, the elevation of your sump tank, your lowest tank in the system, higher, raises the overall system depth and, or system height, and therefore raises up how high you have to be to grow things. So you got to think about that. So think about shelving and stuff like that. It could be a very simple system on one wall in that room, leaving the rest of the room relatively open. But again, you're going to have to think about electrical needs, lighting. Definitely put this stuff on timers. That, I mean, because you're going to forget to turn the lights on. You're going to get forget to turn the lights off and what have you. But I think it's a great idea. I would do it. But those are the those are the issues to think about. Uh, when it comes to designing it and planning it out. But if you have the space available, um, I would do it before I put a garden in because it's going to be uber productive. You'll get more production per square foot of grow area in that system than you will probably anything else you ever do. Just remember, the fish in a system of that size are a byproduct. It's not a protein system. It's a vegetative system that occasionally produces a byproduct of some protein. Uh, let's take another one. Sticking with gardening for a bit, Larry says, let's say you have only a few 4x8 garden boxes with 6 inches of soil. What is the prop- What as a proper would be the most important to try to grow? I think what as a product would be the most important to try to grow? Well, whatever you most like growing, I mean, a few 4x8 garden beds this is at least 3, Right. So that's uh, 32, 64, what, uh da, 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 my mind just went blank from the eclipse uh, fog, I guess. Friggin' 96, right? So 96 square feet of grow area. Uh, with a square foot gardening template mentality, you could theoretically grow 96 different things, one in each square foot there. I'm not saying you should, but I'm saying that's what you could do. And, you know, some of those are like a pepper plant or a tomato plant, but some of those would be like, In the square foot gardening methodology, you might do beets. You do nine beets in one square foot or 12 carrots in one square foot. So what I really wanted to address with this before I talked about picking what to grow in in, in small garden areas is the soil depth issue, the six inches of soil. That's enough depth to grow almost anything effectively. Very few places in nature have more than six inches of just beautiful loamy rich topsoil like we put into a raised garden bed and plants grow there all the time because unless you have something like let's say you have these beds are like tables so that people with wheelchairs can grow plants right where they can roll up to them and do it so they're not contacting the ground unless you have that you have a lot more soil depth than six inches you have whatever's below them it's subsoil but you know tap roots feeder roots etc will get in there and over time if you're managing your beds right You'll actually grow topsoil down into the soil. When I put my raised beds in in Arlington, in the first house that I had when I started this show, um, first when I first got there, the, the, like I was like, i got to do raised beds. The soil was just that black gumbo clay. And uh, so I put these raised beds in, and they were about 6 inches, maybe 10 inches of depth that I built with uh, landscape timbers. And I put this beautiful mix of topsoil and you know, compost and expanded shell and green sand and put all this stuff in there. And it was just gorgeous, you know, and it did really well. Well, by the end of that year, if the bed was eight inches deep, I could stick my hand 10 inches into the soil. I could go two inches into what was black gumbo clay. And after five years of managing that property, by the time we left, I could stick my arm into my elbow I can just push my hand in the soil and just kind of wiggle it and keep going and I can get down to my elbow in that black clay. So the depth really isn't that critical. However, if it's really hard, really impermeable and you want to grow something like carrots, what you do is you take an area that you want to grow in and you build like a mini raised bed of like another six, eight inches and you, you can just basically build a little frame and you stick it there and you fill that up with dirt and you plant your carrots or your long root vegetables into stuff like that. So, so just on the soil depth, if that was even a concern, you can grow anything, even if you spot do it like that. Most of your plants, like peppers and tomatoes and stuff like that, no matter how big that root system gets, when you pull, if you go ahead and pull them out to drop them and recycle them at the end of the cycle, you'll find 90% of the root structure in about 6 inches anyway. And to be fair, I'm not a big fan of square foot gardening. I think it's a great starter drug, uh, but that I get that right from Mel Bartholomew, who wrote the book Square Foot Gardening. That that's that's all you really needed. So how you pick what to grow? Well, let's look at it this way. If I had one bed instead of a few, I would focus mostly on very quick turnover, high dollar, high return, quick growing crops. Spinaches, lettuces, greens, maybe things that are almost perennial like that, like chard, collards, things that can be cut and come again. I would put almost all of my effort into that I would probably grow a few different pepper plants, and I probably would not even screw with tomatoes. If I wanted to do something a little, uh, a little outside the box, I might pop a couple uh, squash seeds in for something like a butternut squash and just train the vines across the ground and not actually grow them in the bed. That'd be the only way I'd grow squash or something like that. If I had a few, I would dedicate one to high turnover, high production, you know, green onions and salad greens and stuff like that. And then I would probably dedicate one to peppers and tomatoes. Just because they're so productive and just because they're something everybody eats. If I had three, then I would probably do something like I would plant one of them completely to a storable crop like peas in the spring. And I would then, when those peas were beginning to, to, to you know, reach the end of their productivity because of heat and what have you, I would direct sow in between the peas a bean crop. And I would get to, because you know you can blanch and flash freeze both of those crops very, very easily. And that would give me a, a good long-term yield. And again, this I'm going to my taste here, so that's what I'm kind of getting to. But what I would do then is that bed next spring would become a leaf crop and then the tomato and pepper bed would become the, the leaf bed and then the beans would go to the ones that was the, the pepper and tomato from the year before. I'd rotate my beds like that because you have all that residual nitrogen left behind from those two leguminous crops. And, and, I mean, again, you got to kind of figure things out. I, what, what I've always loved growing is broccoli. I love growing broccoli. It's a lot harder here in Texas than it was. It was so much more productive in Pennsylvania. It really was. But, you know, I I used to plant a whole 18-foot by 2-foot wide row of nothing but broccoli plants. And I would plant a quarter of the plants, and a week later I would put another. uh, So what we did is we started the the seeds in four different rotations. So we'd plant 25% of them, 25% of them, 25% of them, 25% of them. Never do that here in Texas. The, the, the window is way too narrow to do that. But they grew, you know, broccoli grew right through the summer in Pennsylvania. So as early as you could, and then every week another quarter went out. And then that way you got all your big heads in one shot, and you started getting your side shoots, and you, we would grow those side shoots. So I would do that. Cucumber is another thing I would look at growing. If I only had a few beds, you know, I, I would orient my beds so that they're a long way facing the solar aspect so if they're 4 by 8 the 8 foot is facing south so that it gets the most sun and across the back I would put a trellis and I would grow things like tomatoes and cucumbers and tomatillo on that back trellis so it doesn't shade out the plants in the foreground and that way I could plant those way up against the back and give some of that space back to other plants but lots of quick, ter- I mean that's when it comes to vegetables, what you really get the most bang for your buck out of quick-growing green crops. And if you look at all the guys that do market gardening, spin farming, that's what they grow. That's what that's because it's expensive. Go out and price a a, a, a bag of organic arugula and spinach and spring mix. And then realize how much you use to make a salad for two people. And you guys don't realize, this shit's expensive. And it's fast. So you could always be eating something. Always harvesting, always planting, always harvesting. If you are in limited space, if you're not constantly through the season planting something and harvesting, you're harvesting, you're planting, and you're culling. And when you cull and you have an open space, you're putting something new in. When you have limited space, that's how you have to be under operations. You're constantly adding things. Maybe if you're in the South, like here in Texas, you have kind of a, like July and August, you're not adding anything. You're keeping whatever you can alive, but by September, you're dropping plants in again, and you're going into fall. That's how you manage small, intensive garden systems. Let's take another one. Next one, another short segment, but it's definitely a resource worth worth knowing about. This comes from Gary, and Gary says, I'm not sure if you're aware of it, but the American College of Surgeons and the Committee on Trauma have created a program to train people with little or no prior training or experience to control severe hemorrhage bleedingcontrol.org is the website that and a good first aid class would get someone wanting to be prepared in a good spot and I thought your audience might be interested it's a good class available all over and I even use the curriculum when teaching EMTs again bleedingcontrol.org well thank you for that Gary Uh, with the classes all over like they are and I do have a link to the website in the show notes it might even be something that if you're you know if you're involved with talking to people in your area about preparedness and stuff like that, you kind of do it as a group, and it might be kind of cool to do. It certainly do not cost much money to do. Um, I kind of wanted to talk about why it's something we should really pay attention to, is learning to deal with hemorrhaging, bleeding. Um, the reality is the three leading causes of death from any sort of blunt trauma which could be being hit in the head with a sledgehammer, being in a car wreck, falling off of a building, are injuries to the head and the thorax and bleeding out. I mean, it's the one, it is one of the major causes of death, one of the major ways that people die. Um, a lot of other things, it's not that they're not deadly, but there's not a lot you can do about it. I think everybody should learn CPR as well, et cetera, but... I mean, while CPR does save lives, usually it's not that you're saving somebody's life without a heart attack. I'll put it to you that way. There's there's a lot of things that can happen that are deadly that things like that might keep somebody alive, but you gotta get them to a hospital or they're gonna die. And a lot of times they're gonna die anyway. But if you can keep blood in the body long enough to get to proper medical attention assuming that nothing else is severely damaged a lot of times a person that would otherwise die will live and if you if you think about something called a blowout kit I mean one of the major things that it's designed to do is is prevent bleedouts um, there's actually that's probably a good thing to talk about right now what is a blowout kit and and what is the purpose of a blowout kit that's basically a trauma kit. It has its uh, roots in the military, and it is primarily designed to deal with three primary causes of death: uh, hemorrhage, which is bleeding, and pretty self-explanatory; tension pneumothorax, which is basically a lung being collapsed due to due to a chest injury, and I won't get deep into that today. Uh, and airway obstruction. And in general, when people die in a way that could have been prevented by a person with not much training, but just a little bit of training, it's usually one of those things. It's usually one of those things. And hemorrhage, of course, being, as far as I'm concerned, at the top of the list, it doesn't it doesn't take much for a person to bleed out and die. It, it really doesn't. But it also doesn't take much, in many instances, for a person that would otherwise die to live. Now, there are places you can bleed where you can't get to. There's things that are, you know, we can't fix everything, but... I mean, a lot of things that you would think, there's nothing that can be done. Uh, the person would never make it. Quick action from a, a thinking person, and it will. So check out the website. Again, it's called bleedingcontrol.org. And as I said, it's not expensive. In fact, it's free. Um, all you gotta do is look and see if there's a class available in your area. If I want to do it, there's one in Spring, Texas, which is kind of far, and San Antonio, which is really far. Um, there's not a lot here, but there's a lot of them all over the place. And the cost, generally a two-hour class, costs $0.00. Uh, and spending two two hours of your life to learn how to save a life is something probably worth doing. Again, bleedingcontrol.org. Okay, here's the next one we have. is from Lauren, Idaho. It says, hey, Jack, could a wildfire on a mountain cause a spring to dry up? A few years ago, a wildfire burned half a mountain near my brother's property, which we've had in the family for many years. The next summer, we noticed that the spring had dried up. I asked my father when the last time he'd seen the spring dry up, and he said never. I hypothesized that it was because of trees dying, but didn't have any proof. After hearing about loggers in Montana watching the streams dried up, I wondered if it was the same situation. Thanks for all you do, Lauren in Idaho. Uh, yeah, this this question made me remember reading that, and I cannot remember for the life of me where I read that, but I do remember that I read it, and I, it was a it was a guy's diary who was cutting trees for timbers for the mines. When they had the huge silver booms and all in Montana, and he said, as they cut the trees, they watched the creeks begin to dry. The levels drop, especially it it wasn't like giant rivers dried up. It was small streams and stuff just just went away, where there'd always been water before, and and that could be very well what happened. Now I've, I've tried to find any reference on that, and I really haven't been able to. I did find something It's a pretty fascinating report. It's from the Iowa State Horticultural Society from January 1st, 1906. And the whole damn thing's pretty interesting. And uh, it's free on Google Books. You can read the whole thing, so I have a link to it. But I wanted to read one part of it to you that kind of reinforces this because I think it would help us all to think more about why we should plant more trees. Um. Another result of the removal of timber has been the lowering of the water level in the soil and the drying up of springs and creeks during the summer season. Every period of heavy rain causes the creeks and rivers to rise, often overflowing their banks and causing tremendous damage to adjacent lands. The Honorable Jono F. Lacey, Congressman from Iowa, in a recent speech said, I was born in the woods of Virginia. I moved to the prairies, and one of the most unpleasant things about my subsequent life was to return to the woods of Virginia and find the old streams and holes we used to swim in and where we used to go fishing are now gravelly roads. They are highways, as dry, as arid as one of the deserts in Arizona or New Mexico. Why is it? Because the trees have been cut down, and the springs, the children of the forest, dried up. Instead of a slow-running brook... Digging out holes here and there, clear as crystal, we have a simply a torrent carrying pebbles and sand from the hills and then a desert. In nearly all cases, an intelligent planting of trees would prevent erosion, and not only this, but the trees planted would give much needed uh, supplies of fuel, posts, and ret- repair material. The chief reason for extensive planting of trees during the early settlement of the state was the necessity for protection of stock, orchards, and for the homes and home buildings. This will continue to be an incentive as the further development of the state takes place. Better longer-lived trees are gradually taking the place of windbreaks of quick-growing species like soft maple, box alder, cottonwood, and willow. Evergreens, which from all standpoints are the best trees for windbreaks, are being widely planted. A full discussion on the planning and care of windbreaks is beyond the scope of this paper, and the same may be said of planning to prevent erosion. Um, I want you to think about this. This is a congressman in 1906. No permaculture, no Jeff Lawton going, hey, look, you cut down the trees, the creeks dry up. Plant trees, creeks come back. Even a congressman understood this in 1906. And it's about the water level. And it's about making the most use And in California, you have idiots out there managing the system during a drought, cutting down the trees because the trees, in their opinion, make the drought worse. And we look to the past and we talk about people as though they were ignorant in the past and we're so intelligent today. So I don't know, um, Lauren, if the reason that your spring dried up out in Idaho was because that fire burned down all those trees. But it's probably the case. So a couple things we can do is, you know, one, that type of system generally is self-reparative. It probably will have a lot of trees coming back on its own. You'll probably have a lot of really rapid regrowth. And in time, nature will probably restore the balance. Burns actually usually result in incredible regrowth. But the other things that you can do is planting a lot more trees on your own property. And, you know, if it makes sense from a total design standpoint, putting swales in. Swales will recharge the aquifer. That's what they really do. They're tree-growing systems that recharge the aquifer. But it's not just trees. It's anything that puts lots of roots into the ground. There's, I uh, can't think of the guy's name, but there's a very famous rancher that's just super ridiculously rich from some chicken enterprise. I've covered it before. And he went out on, you know, hill country land that had no water. They drilled wells over 100 feet deep and found no water. They drilled one well like 80 feet down, and then they found a 100-foot deep cavern. The drill just like nothing resisted. It was like like a cave. went all the way to the bottom before it hit rock again, almost 100 feet, not a drop of water in it. And the guy that drilled the well said, that used to be full of water. There's nothing here. There's nothing I can do for you. They brought in cattle and grass and terraformed it with cattle and grass. Because the deep roots made the water begin to infiltrate once again and improving the soil, etc. So, you know, there is something that can be done, but it is, there's no way from here, from a thousand miles away, uh, without any pictures, without any idea of the total area effective, where's your spring in relation to the mountain that burned down, etc., that I can say conclusively that's what happened, but it certainly sounds like what happened, and it's the consequence of clear-cutting trees. That's, it does the same thing, and we need to be mindful of that. And, folks, get out and plant a tree today. It'll do me more than uh, get on Facebook and bitching about Antifa and KKK Nazis. It certainly will uh, to make the world a better place. Let's take another one. Uh, this goes to Brian. Brian says, I have a question on the Whistler inter- inverters you recommend. You have 400 and 800 watts that you recommend. Um, is there a reason not to get larger inverters? My plan is to use it for camping and to power items when the power is out. Is there a problem hooking one of the larger inverters to my truck battery? If not, would a smaller unit instead of a bigger one, like Tim Allen's approach more power unless, of course, it screws something up? Oh, 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 more power. Oh, oh. Uh, yeah, I used to love that show. Uh, well, first of all, I'm not big on recommending 400 watt inverters. Steve Harris is big on recommending 400 and 800 watt inverters. I'm big on recommending 800 watt inverters. I don't see a lot of advantage to buying a 400 watt inverter. They cost about 30 bucks, an 800 watt inverter. Uh, they cost about 50. I think 20 bucks is, you know, something like that, inconsequential. And uh, the 800 watt Whistler inverter will sustain for a couple, half a second, something like that, a spike drop to 1600 watts. So it will handle startup of most people's, ref- not all, but most people's refrigerators. An 800 watt is generally enough to run a refrigerator which is probably about the highest draw thing that you want to be running on an inverter for any length of time if you're powering your house in a blackout with your car. So I'm a big fan of recommending an 800-watt inverter as a minimum. It's also my standard recommendation. I have nothing against higher-watt inverters. I think the best bang for your buck on wattage is probably the 800, but the next best bang for your buck is a 1,600-watt inverter that handles spikes up over 3,000 watts and will, will definitely run the refrigerator just about anybody out there for about 100 bucks, Here's the difference. If I want to hook my 800-watt inverter up to my truck battery, what I'm going to do is I'm going to probably mount my inverter onto a piece of 2x12 or 2x10 or something like that, or a big piece of plywood squared out or something like that so it doesn't fall down between the motor and go clankety-clank-clank, boom, you know, when I knock it over, when I'm out there with a f- uh, flashlight between my teeth, setting it up in the dark. I'm going to take two alligator clips of wire to the back of it. I'm going to clamp them on the batteries, and I'm going to go on about my way and plug shit into that inverter. It's going to work just fine. Okay. That is not, 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 not what you're going to do with a 1600-watt or more powerful inverter. You're going to need to use something like probably two-gauge, very heavy-duty copper wire. And if you look at the back of the inverters, you'll see the big difference when you go above 800 watts. You're going to see these little thumb screws. The little thing goes in there, and you just screw your little jumper cable-looking things on. And it goes to a big old honking block terminal. And those 1,600-watt and higher-rated inverters don't even come with power cables. You get your own. It's expensive, heavy copper. And you can't just put an alligator clip on that and clip it to your batteries. You need to have it fastened down tight with proper terminal connections. There's nothing wrong with that. And you can put some terminal adapters on your battery so that, you know, your battery clamps go on and there's little additional uh, lugs that come off with screws. But, I mean, this is something you put your your cables on and you're tightening them down with a wrench. Okay? And if they're really short, you might get by with, like, four, number four wire. But if you're running at any distance, let's say you're permanently mounting it, you're looking at, like, You know, number two copper wire. It's expensive and it's heavy. Um, If you're going to go any distance from where the batteries are to where the inverter, and I'm you know heavier is better here. Large amounts of DC current do not travel far well unless you have heavy gauge wire. It's one of the big limitations of DC. You know, we can take 200 foot of of uh, just decent quality extension cord and plug it into a, a, a AC outlet and run stuff that far away, no problem. It just works. That's one of the wonderful things about it. The DC doesn't do it that way. It just doesn't happen. And the more you want to push, the bigger the damn cable's got to be to do it safely without burning it up or to draw it. So you think about what the inverter's doing. The inverter's drawing the power from the battery and then converting it to AC and providing it to the other end. So suffice to say, 1,200-watt, 600 watt inverters need to be bolted down tight with heavy-gauge copper wire. So as long as you're willing to set things up so that you can do that and you have it either permanently mounted somewhere or you have it set up in a, in a way where it is easy to quickly install it properly, that's fine. But if you want the the highest-rated inverter, that you can just grab and clip on. It's an 800 watt inverter. So, with that in mind, I would recommend the 1600 watts if you if you'll take the extra steps to set it up. I have links to the 800 and 600 watt Whistlers, which are new inverters by the way. And I've, I've been meaning to do them as an item in a day because they've made them better. They were good and they're now they're better and they're the same price as they used to be, even though they're better. Um, one thing I'll tell you about Whistler inverters if you're on Amazon reading reviews. Sometimes Amazon does something I consider really effing stupid. Really effing stupid. And that is when they have a product that comes in multiple flavors or shapes or sizes, and they lump all the, the reviews together. This also encourages stupidity in reviewers to not look at the difference between things. One of those examples is Davidson teas. You read a Davis, you're reading Gunpowder Green Davidson Tea, and you're reading the review on it, and they're bitching that the uh, the chamomile doesn't look like the picture. Well, there's no chamomile in green tea, it's green tea. Because all of them are lumped together. That's what they do at Whistler inverters. So you're sitting here and you're reading somebody's bitching about exactly what I'm saying. I got my inverter, and I paid extra money for the 2,000 watt one, and it didn't even come with any cables. And there's some big, stupid square terminals on the back. And the ones I have on my old inverter won't even attach to them. And I, I attached it to a 12-volt DC outlet. I plugged it in my cigarette lighter and it keeps popping fuses. Okay, that's because it's a 2,000-watt freaking inverter and it doesn't work that way. Okay, by the way, you can only pull about 125 to 150 watts of power maximum. Maximum through a 12-volt cigarette lighter style connection. Now, you can pull more through there, but pop goes the fuse, or fry goes the wire. So when you take your 400-watt inverter or your 800-watt inverter from some off-market thing that comes with a little 12-volt pluggy thing, and you plug it in there, and you plug some bigger shit into it, and you turn it on, and it pops a fuse, it's not the inverter's fault. You've tried to draw more through that connection than is possible. So that's why we go alligator clip to the battery with an 800-watt inverter, and that's why we go heavy lug connections to battery terminals with higher wattage inverters, and that's why I generally recommend 800 watts. All right, so next one. Got another cop behaving badly, but the system doing it even worse. Um, This was sent to me by uh, Jason. Jason says it only took six collisions for him to face charges. Yeah, that would be six. I'm going to say before I read this, my nephew um, had three wrecks, all were minor, None were his fault, and they cost him his job of 12 years with CentOS. Because they had a hard thing that if you had more than three wrecks with company vehicles, even if they weren't your fault, you were terminated, because that keeps their insurance rates down. Just just keep that in mind as I read what I'm about to read here. This is from the Miami Herald. Um, deputy smashes into a smart car at 104 miles an hour. The crash left 60-year-old man with severe injuries and resulted in the arrest and charges of a sheriff's deputy who has been on unpaid leave ever since. It occurred on May 27, 2016, but the dash cam video was newly released to the public this month. His trial begins on August 28, and he faces a charge of reckless driving. Deputy Brandon Hagel was looking for a suspect vehicle in connection with a felony that day. Though investigators say he was told three times not to pursue the vehicle, according to the Sun Sentinel. Hagel did not heed the warnings, and in the course of pursuit, changed nine lanes nine times, only activated his emergency lights to go through intersections, and exceeded 100 miles an hour as he crashed into another vehicle, according to reports obtained by the Palm Beach Post. The crash was into the rear of a smart car driven by Henry Deshomes. While Hagel did not suffer any serious injuries, Des Holmes has had to have his spleen removed and suffered from a skull fracture, skull fracture, traumatic brain injury, a broken left arm, a broken back, several broken ribs, a broken pelvis, according to CBS 12. Deshomes' smart car reportedly rolled several times after impact. Hagel was placed on unpaid leave in 2016. He worked as a deputy since 2004. In that time, Hagel was involved in at least six additional crashes with his patrol car. So, Jason, that would be seven for him to face charge, not six. Anyway, uh, those had already resulted in tens of thousands of dollars in damages, but he was usually just given a written reprimand according to the Palm Beach Post. So, now you might think I'm going to jump all over this cop. This guy was an idiot. He's an asshole idiot. And because he was an asshole idiot, some guy was almost killed, and his life just... Can you imagine being 60, minding your own business, driving your smart car, and some sheriff's deputy T-bones the ass end of your vehicle at 100 miles an hour, and your life... I mean, this guy's life is screwed for good. You don't recover from shit like that well if you're 25 and healthy, but by 60, your body just doesn't recover the way that it used to. By forty five, your body anybody's forty five. I am forty five this year, right? You know, like you can try to say you are in good shape now, but you do not recover the way you did when you were twenty one. You jump off a building into a swimming pool, bounce off the the diving board, hit a chair, fall over, get drunk that night, get in a fight, get your ass kicked, and wake up in the morning. And go, hey, you want to go surfing? Right? That shit doesn't happen when you are forty five, and it damn sure don't happen fifteen more years down the road when you are sixty. There's a couple of lessons here, then. Number one, I'm not defending the deputy. I'm not defending the department, okay? But I'm going to say this bluntly. Don't buy a freaking smart car. Don't drive a smart car. And don't get in a smart car. You should return, We should change the name of smart car to stupid car. If you own a stupid car, get rid of it. They are death traps. They do not belong on the interstate system. This is not apologetical for the, for law enforcement, okay? But I just have to say that, like, every time my wife and I see one of those, we're like, nope. And we just look at it and go, duh. I think you're more likely to die in a smart car than on a motorcycle. Because in a motorcycle, you know how at risk you are. But you have certain agility, acceleration and things you can do to potentially avoid accidents that you can't do in a smart car. In a smart car, you have some ridiculous illusion of some sort of barrier around you. I yeah, don't drive a smart car. The other thing here is, as bad as this deputy is, I blame the system. How the hell can you have a law enforcement officer involved in six accidents that were enough his fault that he was reprimanded for them and he's just still out there? How could you how could we ever see something like this happening? Right? And this is what I'm saying with law enforcement. Yes, I believe the majority of people in law enforcement are good, outstanding individuals that are trying to do their best. There is a systemic problem in law enforcement with people covering each other's ass even when they shouldn't. And even the good guys are doing that. And some people are like, if they're good guys, they're not doing it. You don't know. You're not there. You don't understand the culture. You haven't come up with it. You haven't, been, you haven't been doing the job for 15 years. You haven't seen good cops lose their jobs over bullshit. You haven't become jaded. You don't know what it's like. That doesn't mean it's okay, but, but when you just like, it's again, it's like, well, I don't even want to say it because I'm not comparing cops to Nazis, but when you take a group and you say everybody in it sucks and there's nobody in there redeemable at all, you, you can't fix the problem. It's like coming to someone and saying, I hate you. And they go, I'm sorry, what did I do? I hate you. Well, what would you have me do differently? I hate you. I, about the fourth time you get in my face and tell me you hate me, I'm probably going to give you a reason to hate me, a real reason to hate me. But you, you haven't given me anything constructive I can do. You haven't told me, well, because you know you called me a name when we were kids and we went to school together, and I don't even remember who you are, so I can't tell you I'm sorry or what have you. So when you do that, that's all you're doing. But, but that doesn't mean there's not a systemic problem. I mean, just a week ago I covered this poor old lady that they tried to, they tried to auction off her car. In Colorado Springs, now you got this asshole here, and amazing to me that it's Florida because we all know what happened to Miami, Florida, don't we? A few years ago, we don't know. Huh? Did we see it? This asshole police officer—he said he wasn't on duty. He's in his cruiser. He's off duty, not running code, going to his second job, which is like a security guard job, doing over a hundred miles an hour on the highway. And a Florida—he was a local cop, and a Florida State Trooper, a female officer, pulled his ass over threw his ass up against the car, put his ass in handcuffs for reckless driving and endangering lives and took his ass to jail. And everybody said, good girl, you did the right thing. You policed your own. And she was harassed by law enforcement officers, brothers of the blue line, all over the damn United States. Over 400 illegal pullings of her records in other departments successfully sued the shit out of 200 that were identified for it, but another 200 were smart enough to not be identified for it. And you and and, and we have a guy that was in this audience that wrote an email into me and said he knew a cop, that he asked about this, and the guy's like, she should have handled it differently. Basically, screw her. And when the guy pushed him and said, hey, hey, you know what? These laws apply to you too. He's, he, the guy says to him, real smart ass, you know, maybe someday you'll need help from us. What the hell? And then you're going to tell me you don't have a systemic problem? Again, until you guys that wear the uniform, that wear the badge, that are part of the blue line, Will start demanding of your own departments and start standing up for what's right when it's wrong and stop covering the ass of other officers who don't deserve their ass covered until you do it. The problem you have will only get worse. No flipping out. No screaming and yelling today. I'm just telling you, this is an example of the entire department looking the other way. And you've got to stop trying to look at people straight in the face and use the stupid thing of it's a few bad apples or something like that. This is systemic. And, and you've got to be retarded to believe that it's not when you see this stuff. And if you're telling somebody it's not systemic and you expect them to believe you, then you have to think they're retarded. Well, most of us aren't retarded. So quit giving us a retarded explanation and start standing for what's right all the time, not just when it's easy. I never said it would be easy. Because I've heard from cops, you don't understand, we'll lose our jobs. Well, what's more important, you keeping your job or you doing the right thing when you're entrusted with so much power? You tell me. And I'm not saying go out looking for trouble, but when you see it, do something. Do the same thing you say to us. What's law enforcement say to citizens? See something. Say something. It should apply equally to you. The law should apply equally to you, and the concepts under which we all live should apply equally to you. And if they don't, then you don't get respect. And that's what I keep hearing from law enforcement. We used to have respect. Okay, well, maybe you've done something to lose it. And if you want respect, you have to hold the officer next to you, not even to the same standard as a citizen, to a higher standard. You know when I, when I was in the military, and I had times where I had soldiers, you know, underneath me, and I would hear, "Hey, you know, we're 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 as good as, you know, we're we're good enough." Bullshit, bullshit. We need to be better than good enough. We need to exceed what's expected of us, not just meet it. And what some pogue over there does, I don't give a shit about. We don't have any control of it. We have control over ourselves. That's how you guys need to be in your departments, and, you know, there's worse things than making a career change if you can't find one that works that way. There really is. All right. Next one, this comes from Mike. He says, I have a quick question about chop and drop. I have raised beds with oak shavings from wine barrels from mulch on top. Getting ready to chop my summer crop down and plant my fall winter crop. When I chop and drop, do I just drop it on the mulch and call it good? Okay, I'm going to stop there because you have multiple questions. You can. You can. I mean, it all depends on what you're doing and what you want to accomplish. Generally speaking, the best thing to do when you chop down things like tomato plants or pepper plants or whatever, whatever you chop them down, that's pretty large. is not just cut it at the bottom throw the whole plant down, but to cut it up in small pieces. Um, you can pull back your, your, your regular mulch and put the new stuff in contact with the soil and re- recover it, and that will help it break down. But you can just chop it up and lay it back down. It all depends on what you're trying to do, how much there is of it, you know, what your circumstances are. I'll tell you one of the things I generally don't do, though, is I don't generally pull the plants out of the ground. I cut them off at soil level and then chop them up and do whatever with them. And I leave those roots in the ground to feed earthworms and soil biology and stuff like that. And the next plant, if that root ball's in the way, you just move over an inch and plant it an inch over to the side. Um, so that's, that's that. And he says... Um, also, I have comfrey I started from seed in little starter trays. They're super small, about three to four leaves per plant. Uh, when should I transplant them into the ground? Um, well, it depends. What you really want for resiliency in comfrey is a good root system. Um, if you have a nice, somewhat shady, moist, well-maintained area, maybe give them a little extra love for a while. You can put them in the ground whenever you want. You can certainly direct sow comfrey if you're doing it from seed. Now, this is true comfrey, then. So one thing to be aware of is if you let those plants flower and go to seed, you will have more comfrey just popping up places. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying be aware of it. Where if we use clones like Bocking 4, Bocking 14, etc., that are sterile, then they only reproduce from division. Uh, So you're not going to have them popping up over here and over there. So that's fine. Just know that you've got... um, uh, uh, Officialis, I guess is the, the variety, your, your regular uh, comfrey so just be aware of that what I would probably do if they're in small trays, I'd probably put them right now into a much larger container and keep loving on them till they get more size on them and uh, get some significant root mass to them and I would probably plant them in, in early fall Then you, they'll, they'll probably get a lot bigger a lot faster if you give them some more space uh and, and you know by that point once you have them in the ground they'll put on more root energy just mulch them when they die back from frost and uh man they'll come up in spring you won't you won't believe what they'll do next year so that's what i would do there uh he says i have twin identical i have identical twin boys expected to be here in october I just want to say i have listening to you since the vw work to work days you've helped me put Put me on the path to financial stability, healthier home food production, and overall better outlook. as a crazy world we're bringing the boys into. Thank you for everything you do, and keep up the great work. Mike, P.S. Sorry, one more. Uh, You've let two sneak in. Thought I'd try three. Is there any way to download the zip files of all the past episodes to my phone? I exclusively listen to you on my phone. I don't even own a computer. If three is too many, I understand. Thanks either way, uh, Mike. So, Mike, I don't know if this works because I didn't try it. But I did notice uh, that if you go to the App Store, and I'm sure you have the same type of thing um, on uh, the Androids and stuff like that of the world, that there is a. um, There are many uh, zip file openers and zip file viewer uh, applications for smartphones. So you should be able to go out and get some of these zip file uh, apps and play with them what have you and you should be able to just go to the directory that you can get from the MSB and you know individually open those I don't know how you can save them I don't, don't know how that would work right so I'm not really sure uh, but just so that everybody knows when you join the MSB one of the benefits you get is all of the shows ever done are in 24 blocks in zip files. And uh, the way the MSB is, it looks like they run out, but they don't. There's a link that tells you to go to the directory, and you can get them all, every one that's ever been done up to the last 24. Uh, so so that's the direction that I'm going to send you in. If anybody knows a good uh, app for smartphones for things like this, uh, let us know in the, uh, in the comments of the show notes, and if uh, there's a good suggestion, I'll maybe put it on the show next week, uh, the Monday show next week. That does wrap things up for the day, guys, and uh, I hope this was a good show for you guys, and I, I hope you got a lot out of it. And remember, if you're, you're not hearing the content you want on a Monday show, send me an email. Tell me what you want me to talk about. This show is driven you know, mostly by the audience. If you think about it, um, my Monday shows are 100% audience-driven. My Thursday shows, the call show, are 100% audience-driven. And the expert counsel shows on Fridays are 100% audience-driven. Uh, Interviews, A lot of those are driven by the audience suggesting a guest to apply or what have you. A lot of times the guest is out of the audience. And even the Tuesday shows where I pick a standalone uh, thing, I'd say half of them stem from calls, questions, etc. that I'm getting from you guys. And I say, hey, I'm going to do a whole show on that. So this show is largely shaped by you guys. Uh, That's the way that it's always been. I try to keep it that way. So if you're thinking, I want more of this or less of that, then tell me what you want more of. Telling me you want less of something will not help. That will not help. Telling me you, what, what, you, what you want to hear more about, that will help. So you got lots of ways to do that, lots of ways to steer the conversation. Uh, with that, if you like the show and the work I do, one of the ways you can help support us, it's like totally painless, is when you're going to do your online shopping like at Amazon, just go to tspaz.com first. T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com first. You go to tspaz.com and uh, you just link on over to Amazon from there and buy what you were going to buy anyway and help support the show. But you can also check out the reviews that we have. I have a cool one for you today, man. I'm excited about this stupid little product. So excited about it because it's so damn awesome. It's made by a company called Nebo, and I've been checking out their other products since I found this one, and I think you're going to hear more uh, from me on Nebo. I think I found another city level uh, provider. Uh, but it's called the 6350 Larry work light. Larry liked the name. I don't know where the hell that comes from in this thing. But apparently in like the computer tech world, this is a well-known little product. They're about eight bucks. And it is a 170 loom work light. And what I mean by that, it's like, it looks like a fluorescent LED. Uh, it's about two and a half, three inches long, the light portion. And it's built like kind of like a pen, like a big pen you would keep in a shirt pocket, which is how it's designed. It's got a little clip on it, and that clip has a magnet, so it'll stick to metal. The bottom base is flat so it'll stand up. And the way I found out about this was really cool, I got an email from a guy. He said, Hey, I found one, he showed me a, a link to it. He said, I found one of these things in a ceiling. Like a drop ceiling, like where they run computer cables and stuff like that. It's sitting up there, it was dead. I probably was using it left it up there on and it you know wore the batteries out so I took it home figured out how to open it. it takes three uh three AAA batteries I popped some batteries and man this thing's a it's bright you know and it's just great for working on stuff like that and uh, so I ordered two of them because they were eight bucks and 50 cents it was 853 a piece something like that and uh, they got here I turned it on I was like holy crap I mean this thing like hurts your eyes if you look at it and it runs on three AAA's, and it's really got a great form factor, really lightweight, and just a great little tool. I wouldn't call it a tack light at all; it's a work light. Uh, it's not something you're going to carry around in your pocket, you know, with your concealed carry, and it's not really designed that way. It's 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 much more omnidirectional than your typical flashlight, which is good because it fills an area with light. And for eight fifty, are you kidding me? So I have a link to where you can get them on Amazon today. Individually, or you can get a four pack, save about a buck 13, and four different color ones. Uh, it's just a great tool. I also put out a video and it shows me in my bathroom. And I'm in the bathroom, uh, you know, pointing at the door because it's one of the few rooms in the house I can totally kill all the light to. And it's just pitch dark in there uh, when I turn the lights off and I turn this thing, it lights the whole room up. It's uh, again at the price point, uh, really impressive, great reviews. And one I did a little research on, apparently, like computer tax uh, electricians, anybody that works in ceilings and stuff like that, very, very well thought of little tool or worse under desks where you have to be able to see what you're doing, you know, cause again, it's metal. So a lot of your computer, uh, cabinets, it'll stick right to the side of a computer cabinet or the metal on a desk. You can turn that on. You can really see what you're doing. And, you know, back in the nineties, I was, I was in the fiber optic cable and, and data cabling, voice cabling. I was in ceilings and walls and stuff like that all the time. This thing would have been the bomb, so I understand that, but, man, I think this belongs in every tackle box, every tool box, every range box, every glove box, every boat box, you name it, because it's just too damn valuable for what it does for the price. Check it out again, the Nebo 6350 Larry work light. And if anybody can tell me why the hell they call it a Larry, first person that does that, I'll send you one for free. Uh, with that, let's talk about YouTube channel of the day. YouTube channel of the day is really cool, um, it, it was it, it was one of those ones that I was like I don't know how much I'm gonna like this one until I actually looked at it. It's called the Essential Craftsman, and uh, this guy's awesome. He's an older guy. Uh, he does from just general carpentry to restoring old tools to how to use old tools to you know little things like why are these certain markings on a specific tool? What does it actually do for you? Basics of Using a Framing Squirrel, a Square, Framing Squirrel, <laughs> Framing Square. Uh, he has really great stuff on blacksmithing. Uh, great channel again. It's called uh, The Essential Craftsman. I have a link to today's show notes. Definitely worth subscribing to. Check it out. Remember, you can always suggest channels for me if they have at least a 1,000 subscribers. Just email me, Jackthesurvivalpodcast.com, TSPC, YouTube, in the subject line. Tell me one or two sentences about the channel, and please include a link to it. Uh, don't assume that I'm going to be able to find it. Usually I can, but it's much better if you give me a link to it. And I'll check them out and put them in the queue, and we'll get them up as YouTuber of the day. Uh, that brings us to our song of the day. This is a song I, I never heard of, and it was it's about something that when I read about it, I was like, yeah, I did know about that. But, boy, that was way back somewhere in the recesses of the minds. The song is called I Don't Like Mondays by the Boomtown Rats which I thought, you know, it's a Monday, and I've heard that song somewhere in my head, like on radio stations on Mondays or something like that, Um, and I just kind of think of it as that's what it's about. Like, Mondays suck. It's not, man. It's about a school shooting. This is from Song Facts. This is about Brenda Spencer, a 16-year-old San Diego high school student who lived across from an elementary school on Monday January 29, 1979, she opened fire on a school with a rifle, killing two adults, including the principal, and injuring nine kids before going back home. Police surrounded her home and waited seven hours until she gave herself up. In that time, she spoke with a reporter on the phone. When asked why she did it, she replied, I just started shooting. That's it. I just did it for the fun of it. I just don't like Mondays. I just did it because it's a way to cheer the day up. Nobody likes Mondays. Um, So I was like, yeah, okay, I remember hearing about this sick bitch. Uh, Please tell me she's still in prison. So I looked her up. She's still in prison. Her last parole hearing was in 2015. She told a bunch of bullshit, nonsensical lies. uh, And they basically said, we're not even looking at you for parole again until 2025. So at least she'll be there that long. But this is a song about somebody with a serious mental disorder. I'm not saying she doesn't belong in prison, but like reasonably sane people do not be, even if they're murderous, they don't, they don't behave that way. They don't just go out and do it and then just admit they did it and say something stupid like that. There's this there's great screw loose in this girl's head. I don't know how I feel about this song. I, when I first saw the title and I didn't really think about what it was all about, I was like, oh, it's a Monday and I don't really hate Mondays anymore, but I understand a lot of people do and also maybe, but when I read all that, I'm like, I don't know how I feel about it. But then I thought about it this way. This journey we're taking through music with the assistance of John Adam, who's been basically the program director for the music now for, I guess about a hundred shows is a journey through music and what music's all about and what it communicates. And this is a song that didn't do well in the United States did really well throughout the European market was a huge hit for this group again, called the boomtown rats, which are a group out of the UK. Um, because maybe it hit a little too close to home here, I guess. But it is a song, when I, when I you know, started checking into it, that is played by like radio stations and things like that on Mondays. Some radio stations play it every Monday at the same time. And I wonder how many people that hear the song don't know the story behind it. And it's one of the things we should be doing, is looking deeper into the story behind the music. Because a lot of these artists that we just look at as pop artists and all, they actually really do have some very deep things to say and with that here's the song i hate i don't like mondays by the boomtown rats with that this has been jack Spirico with another edition of the survival podcast helping you figure out how to live that better life times get tough or even if they don't
0: gonna go to school today. She's gonna make them stay at home. Daddy doesn't understand it. He always said she was good as gold. And he can see no, no reasons cause there are no, no reasons. reasons. why. reason do you need to The Telex machine is kept so clean and it types to a waiting world. A mother feels so shocked, father's world is rocked, and the thoughts turn to their own little girl. The sweet 16 ain't that keen. Now I ain't so need to admit it. Cause there are no No. reasons what reasons